The last time that I, I spoke, we were in Zechariah chapter 1. Why don't you turn there? We're not going to stay in Zechariah today. When I was there uh, and going through the passage, I, I got to the end of the passage. Um, obviously, it, uh, what it calls for there is repentance. And I said, you know, I, I've been counseling here at Grace Community Church. Uh, I've been on staff for 29 years, so I've been counseling for 29 years. And even before then, when I was uh, serving in ministry here, and sometimes I always wondered whether the person was really a repentant or not. Have you ever had that? You know, somebody says, oh, please, I'm sorry. You know, and you wonder, are they really, they really mean it? Or, or please forgive me, and then they go about and they do it again. So, you know, we're not the only people that have that kind of an issue. God did here at the end of, or in the book of Zechariah, I'm pointing out to the people of Israel, you've got a problem. You say it with your mouth. You say it with your mouth but you don't do it in your life. And I'm not seeing it. And so let's see something here. Now, I'm not from Missouri, but it's like the show me state. Show me what's going on. Um, we were finishing up on this subject, and I, I just want to read verse 6 there. But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers, meaning they did. It was a, this is the kind of thing that was overtaking them because this is the truth, and it overtook them. And what did they do? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So they're now in a period of repentance. They're coming out of 70 years in Babylon. Uh, why don't you go to Babylon and see what it's like? Okay. But they're coming out of that, and so they're repenting. You know, it's like the, the child that you sent to their room and said, you can't come out until you're 20. <laughs> you know, they're only three when you send them in there. Uh, yeah, they want to repent. While repentance was crucial for the Jewish nation, folks, it is as well, and probably more so for the Christian church today. It is something that is to happen it is something that's to happen in each one of us. Sometimes in the Christian community, there is a confusion over this doctrine of repentance. First, my friends, I need to declare something. And please wait. That if your life is not a life of repentance, you do need to question whether you're a believer or not. I'm sincere in that. I put in here, whoa. Whoa, how could he be saying that? But if your life is not a life of repentance, even today, how can you say that you are a faithful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? We're going to finish this message, and then I want you to evaluate yourself. I want you to interact with that thought, and we hopefully we'll have a few minutes at the end here, depending upon if it's a long-winded preacher today or not. Repentance, folks, is one of the pillars of the Christian faith because salvation begins with repentance and your sanctification ends with repentance. And so we looked at Zechariah a few weeks ago and, and so I want to build on what we saw there. And I, I do that periodically where I'll get to a passage and something will just stick out and I, I just want to get into it. That's a beautiful book. I got to tell you, I can't wait to get back in it. Um, just don't know how to get rid of Carl. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. The doctrine of repentance we need to learn. By the way, don't tell him, aha, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> if the Jewish nation is not repentant, God will not work with them. As a matter of fact, if you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 3, God divorces Israel. He divorced them. He wasn't married. Yes, he was. He divorced them. In Jeremiah 3.8, it says this, I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Now, that language comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, where uh, Moses gave the way that you're supposed to divorce somebody and you had to give them a, 
a piece of paper, a writ of divorce, and then you could divorce them because the Jewish men were divorcing their wives, you know, over and over and over and over again. And so God himself gave her a writ of divorce. So often the Christian becomes sad over not having some of the things of the world, you know, not having the big house and the big car and the, all of this. You do not have the latest of this and you do not have, you do not have. In actuality, the believer should be sad over the thing that they do have, sin. Sin. I have some questions for us to ponder. I'm going to put them up there one at a time, I think. I'm not in control here, folks. Okay, I just want you to know that. Questions to ponder. Questions to contemplate. Do you have a resentment for your sin? I put it in the personal pronoun up there because you're reading it as I'm saying it. Do you have a resentment of your sin? Do I have a resentment for my sin? Do you have a regret over your violation of God's commandments? Is that something that you think about or are you just sad because you got caught? That's what happens a lot of times. You get sad because you're caught. You know, it's like the kid with the finger, the, the hand in the cookie jar. Oh, mom caught me. Like the other night, my wife went to bed early and I had something else to eat. <laughs> I ate it and threw it in the garbage, but I didn't realize she was going to open up the garbage in the morning and throw something away and say, oh, you ate this. Oh, great. I had regret. <laughs> Do you have revulsion over your iniquities? You look at them and you want to get sick because you see that sin. And that's a sin that keeps coming back. And it keeps coming back and it's plaguing you. Do you have repentance for your treason? Because in a sense, that's what it is. It's treason against the word of God. It's treason against God. He hates it. He sent his son to die for it. And yet we still play like the pigs do in the pig pen with sin. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of insight from the New Testament here. And again, this is not preaching through a passage. You know, I'd much rather do that, but uh, this, this subject just is on my heart. From the first inkling of the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message has been the same. Repent. Zechariah's messianic prophecy in the nation's call to repentance. So, Right when the beginning of the church is there, it's repentance, and it even comes in the Old Testament. We enter into the New Testament, and, then, and the nation is called to repentance by the first preacher. We see that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Okay, I think I'm on. Okay. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And it says there, why don't you turn there, Matthew 3, chapters, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. R remember, he was a baby in the womb who recognized Jesus and got excited. So they are human in the womb. As we enter into the New Testament preaching of the gospel by the disciples, the message is the same. Acts 2.37, just jot that down. Now when they heard this, they were pierced in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter then looks at him and he says this, Repent! Repent! That's what you need to do is repent. Repent of the evil that you do. Repent of the sin that you do, the treason. Acts 3.19. It says they repent and return 
so that your sins may be wiped away. Notice the word return there. It's the same kind of word that was used in Zechariah chapter 1, where Zechariah was calling for them to return. You return to me, God says, I will return to you. It's the idea of repentance. It's going in one direction and going in the other, uh, all at the same, uh, turning around and going in the other direction. I will come back to this concept of having one's sins wiped away, but I want to have a notice the profound emphasis of the coming before God and repenting. There is an emphasis on it, folks, that that is what you ought to be doing. And that doesn't mean, okay, that this repenting is some kind of juvenile repenting. You know, I, ah, that, that sin, you know, I, what I do is I you know, participate in that. It's okay. And you walk the aisle, you sign the Bible, and you raise a hand, and, and <clears throat> somebody dunks you in some water, and you're saved. Ah, it's juvenile. Zachariah says the word is return. You go in one direction, you come in the other direction. The whole nation was going in the wrong, wrong direction, in the wrong, one way, and they were to turn and come back. In the New Testament, it's no different. It's a turning from sin. It's an embracing of Christ. Thomas Watson said it this way, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Did you hear that? Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. There's a change that has gone on. Something has happened to that person. And it becomes evident to others as they see that change. Let me give you a picture of that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I I just thought of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 14. And I'm jumping around here, and I know that, but you folks know the Bible, so you know how to get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. That's really the question that we ask in biblical counseling. Does the love of Christ control you? Or are you out of control? It's one or the other, right? There's no neutral line there. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who might live might no longer live for themselves. Do you see what the difference is? You come to Christ, you repent, you don't live for yourself anymore. It's not about me and I and mine and all of that. It's now about you. It's now about serving others. That's what happens in salvation. That's what happens when you truly repent. That's a giving of yourself over to those things. That's what happens. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Did you notice that, folks? Who's the person who's living according to the flesh? The world. Do you know who else is living according to the flesh? The Christian who's not repenting, who continues in their sin. For you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a mortification that has to go on. There's a killing of those sins. A few years ago in in Faith Builders, we used a book called Killing Sin Habits by a good friend of mine, Stuart Scott. And we went through that, and it was very instrumental in helping some men in some issues that they had, some ladies. Now, it goes beyond just the mortification, but there's an exercise that needs to go on. It's the exercise of godliness. First Timothy, why don't you turn there with me? Folks, it's not just, you know, hey, I'm in the kingdom. I have nothing to worry about anymore. I'm going to heaven. No, there is a sense here that now you grow. You now become more like Jesus Christ. That's what's to be happening. And in 1 Timothy 4, 
Um, Paul gives this great, uh, well, forget about the worldly fables about women. We don't want, they don't have any worldly fables around here. This is anchored. At the end of that, he's at the end of that verse or towards the end there, he says, on the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. Folks, there is a plan that needs to be put together. You don't just sit in your easy chair and just say, okay, Lord, I need a holy zap. Give me a holy zap. No, no. You have to put a plan together. That means picking up your Bible. That means studying. That means confessing sin. And we'll talk about that in a little while. Verse 7, it says, Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to be doing something in your Christian life. Do not leave it up to the man who's in that pulpit over there. He's been faithful for 50 years, but he's been faithful for 50 years so that you would be faithful for the rest of your life. For most of you, he's going to be gone. And whoever else is in the pulpit after him, you still have to be faithful for yourself. Where you are in your life, you have to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 13. Don't leave it just up to, oh, the preacher didn't do this. And you know what? And I I love listening to preaching. I, I do it as well. Not just on Sunday, but even during the week. Study the word for yourself. Spend time in the word yourself, interacting with it, asking yourself questions, the hard questions. Is that really me? Am I growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior? John Owen wrote a a great book about sin and temptation. Excellent book. I even have a small one. The bigger one is much better, but the small one is okay as well. And John Owen said this, Exercise and success in mortification are the two main cherishers of grace in the heart. You want the grace of God? You extend yourself. You extend yourself in your study. You keep working on it over and over. Repentance is a necessary component of genuine conversion. Repentance is a a necessary component of genuine conversion. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I'm okay. I'm going to stick with this. This is okay. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Please open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7.10. And it says there, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance. Did you see that? When you sin, there should automatically be a sorrow. There should be some kind of reaction to the sin. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. And you, you, you don't even think about it. You just regret your sin leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What does that look like? It, you're sorry because you got caught. You're sorry because you lose your tr- uh, reputation. You're sorry because people will not like you anymore. You're sorry because people will now suspect you. I remember telling my kids, the one thing as your father I do not want you to do is lie to me. I can have almost anything else, almost. But if you lie to me, how can I ever think in the future that you'd be telling me the truth? So don't lie to me. So we're talking about these unsaved people here, the genuine conversion they must turn from their sin. And I would say all of us here probably have some kind of conversion story, if you're a believer, where you are going in one direction and then all of a sudden you turned in the other. Thank God for that. If you don't have that kind of story, if you don't know, hey, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. You see, when you are an unbeliever, you are in the state of self-rule. 
You do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. And that's how you live. You are the small L Lord of your life. You are the small M of your life master. It's not until you give your life over to Christ completely thoroughly and you turn from your sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Verse 9. <clears throat> and here's the, the beginning of this conversion. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord... What does that do? That makes him the big M master. Okay. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, what you do is you give up your self-rule and you put it in his hands and you depend upon him. And you humbly come before him and say, no, you, you, you take over my life. I've been trying to run my life for much too long, and I've been messing it up anyway. Lord, you need to take it over. First John. First John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4, it says, And any, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Purifies himself. That means continually confessing sin, repenting. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. If you practice sin, how can you say you're a Christian? You know what frustrates me most as a biblical counselor? is for somebody to come in and say that they've had this life of sin. They, they, get, they had all this corruption over and over and over and over and over again, 20 years, 25 years. And they say, yeah, I became a Christian when I was 16. And I hear of a life of 25 years of, of corruption. And I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I, I'm sorry, but that, that doesn't, it just doesn't jive. There should be a trajectory change going in another direction. And folks, you could sit here and fool everybody. I mean, that's, that's easy to do. But you can't fool him. You can't fool him. He knows. You see, Satan strives to capture your heart. He strives to capture your heart. And if you don't turn your heart from sin, he's got you. So therefore, you must repent. Now, repentance, I've seen it before. I had a gentleman in my office once, had a terrible problem with drugs and alcohol, terrible problem. And I counseled with him. My office used to be there in the chapel and, and he's sitting there. Tears are flowing out of his eyes. I mean, like crazy over and over. And I mean, for, I mean, this is a man who stole furniture from his in-laws patio to sell, to get drugs. Okay. And he's now repenting because this week he stole his kid's piggy bank to get drugs. And he's repenting of all of this. And he leaves my office after he's been on his knees in my office. And he goes out to his car, which is parked right in front of the chapel, picks up a bowl of crack cocaine and starts smoking it. I happened to walk out of my office just as he lit up. And I went, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That meant nothing. That meant nothing. Now, that seems pretty outrageous, right? But you know, we do the same thing. when we keep going back to it and back to it and back to it. If you fake repentance, God knows it immediately. We can go back to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10, where it says there about Judah. It says, yet is in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares Yahweh. He knew. He knew it was deception. He knew it wasn't real. And he knows that with us too. 
sadly. He knows that with us as well. Friends, do not rely on that juvenile giving of your life to God without comprehensive change of life. That's what needs to happen. There needs to be a change of life. You cannot remain in your sin and say you are Christ's. It is a whole heart that he wants. A whole heart that must turn to Christ if it is to be real repentance. You cannot pretend. You cannot pretend before God. Because one day you will see him face to face, eye to eye, and, and you'll have to give an account. Second Corinthians 10.5. I love what Thomas Watson said. He said, true repentance must have no reserves or inmates. None. True repentance must have no reserves or inmates. Additionally, John Murray said this. He said, repentance consists essentially in change of heart and mind and will. So all of the various aspects of a human being and making decisions has to be turned over to God completely and thoroughly. That's what has to happen. So let me give you some help here. And, and I want you to take these verses down. If you're not taking notes, then um, you should be taking notes. I'm watching for the pens to come out. Isaiah 55. I got to tell you, this is a wonderful call to repentance. But ladies and gentlemen, this is a call to salvation. Remember that. This is a call to salvation. And in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. It may be a day where it's too late. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Folks, I can't tell you how many times I've offered that <clears throat> to people, either in witnessing or even in the counseling room, and saying, I, I don't know that you're a Christian. Give your whole life over to Christ. Everything. Because you keep coming back week after week after week after week to see me. I sometimes do something funny with my collar and said, oh, don't you think I'm a priest? Is that what it is? You think I'm a Catholic priest and you come in here for confession? I grew up a Roman Catholic, so I know exactly what it's like. Every week going in and confessing the same sin. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. That's repentance at conversion. It's a giving over of oneself completely and thoroughly to what God wants us to do. But repentance also remains continually necessary after conversion. And I'm just going to tell you, you need to read Psalm 51. You can see what David does there with his uh, sin and how he confesses that they are so open. You know, what he was trying to hide before, now he brings out into the open. Saved people must turn from sins. But I call this... <clears throat> and by the way, I don't expect anybody to be perfect in here. Okay? So I'm not looking for perfection, folks. I call this the symptoms of the lingering disease of the flesh. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. There is a lingering disease which we have as believers... <clears throat> in Galatians chapter 5, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, it says there, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Did you see that? Walk by the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. By the way, you can't generate that. The Holy Spirit generates that but walk by it. 
Walk by it. Verse 17. For the flesh, that's, that's our inner man, our uh, flesh that's unredeemed, so to speak, sets this desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. There is a battle going on, and I know that, folks. I understand that. I'm not talking about that daily battle that we have of a thought coming into our mind or, or a temptation uh, uh, presenting itself to us. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ongoing sin that people have that they're not dealing with. They're not dealing with. That's a lingering disease that we have. Unless there is genuine repentance, the Bible tells us, you will perish. That's scary. That's scary. You will perish. Luke 13, 5 says that. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So my friends, that's what we need to have as a life of repentance. Continual. It's not just a one-time event, you know, when you came to Christ, but it's continual, ongoing life of repentance. All true human repentance has reference to a turning from the state or the occurrence of sin and the turning to God for forgiveness and renewal. That's what you, you turn to God for, save me, change me, keep molding me, keep doing that work. God, I need it. Is a man whose name is Philip Tart, and he wrote in The Real Thing, he said, quote, After all, you can quite easily feel sorry about some sin and still love it. Did you hear that? After all, you can quite easily feel sorry about some sin and still love it. You can confess some sin and then go on, go and commit it again. But repenting means stop doing the thing for uh, you are sorry for. Just feeling sorry does not change anything. Doesn't change anything if you feel sorry for it. So, here's some warnings, folks. And I'd like you to turn there with me in Matthew chapter 3. Scripture often alludes to a false repentance that does not actually bring forgiveness. Um, and you know what, folks? That gets on to the whole idea of forgiveness and how do you know that somebody's really uh, genuine when they're asking for forgiveness? Give it to them, folks. God will take care of it. Somebody asks for forgiveness, give that to them. Don't you be the judge now of whether it's genuine or not. All right? Matthew chapter 3. I'm getting there, but I only have one hand. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, when somebody repents, there should be some fruit bearing. There should be change in their life, and, they, and you should be able to see the fruit coming from their life. So what I'd like to do here is to give us two things that we need to be looking for. One is elements, and the other one is effects. want to understand what they are, the elements that are part of repentance, of true repentance, folks. Things that you begin to practice. Things that you begin to see in yourself. So elements of true repentance. Number one is comprehending. That's a change of mind. Coming to the point where you know that what you've done is an offense against the holy God. Knowing what you've done has put Christ on the cross. That's what this is. It's a comprehending. It's a change of mind. We must understand the truth relevant to our sin and our Savior before we can repent. I can remember when I was being witnessed to. Wow. 1982, and uh, asked to read this scripture, that scripture, and as I'm reading the scripture, I'm going, oh, 
I'm that guy. I don't remember exactly what scriptures they were, but knowing that I was the sinner, that I was hell-bent. a matter of fact, the description I give is that I was on a bullet train to hell. And I knew it immediately. And there was a turn. There was a change. Not completely. You can ask my wife. We must understand the truth relevant to our sin and our Savior before we can repent. The Greek word that's often translated repentance is the word metanoia, which denotes a change of mind. Repentance is changing one's mind to conform to God's standard. This is the standard. I, I don't want a surface standard of what the world thinks is important. Folks, I mean, look at the world. This is disaster. And this past week, it's two weeks in a row we've had disaster after disaster. It, it, don't, don't look at that as being your, no, this is it. This is the standard. And so we need to be following that standard. It's God's standard. It, it's not just saying, and folks, please take this the right way. It's not just saying, I will now go to church and I will now read my Bible. No, it's now living this standard. That's what happens. There's a change, an automatic change that starts to go on. I, I remember when I got saved, I, I tried to find a man. Can you, can you build into my life? Because, hey, I, I've been so corrupt. <laughs> I, I could, and, and he, I pleaded with him, please, whatever you need to do. He gets in my car one time and he starts checking out the, the uh, uh, cigarette lighter. And I said, what are you checking that out for? He said, oh, I want to see if you're still smoking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm not smoking anymore. I've given that up. And, and so he wanted to check everything. He checked under the hood, so to speak. All right? All of those kinds of things. It is important to understand, folks, that mere sorrow for sin or even deep remorse over one's sins does not constitute genuine repentance. Unless unless it is accompanied by sincere decision to forsake the sin. Remember the first Timothy. It's working out your salvation. It's the godliness that you need to be putting into place. You need to come up with a plan. If we don't have a plan, we'll give you a plan. We have them that people can use, that people can study, that people can talk about people were as somebody was asking me the other day about uh, a book for devotional and i said what about an infant journey by andrew davies i said it's a nice thick book and it'll get into your kitchen use that look with me at hebrews chapter 12 hebrews chapter 12 and i know we're all over the place today and sorry about that we'll come back to as zachariah soon Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. Uh, you know, I, I, I love this passage here. It's, it, you know, this is after the hall of faith, and, and then it goes into the discipline of children and all of that. But then it gets to verse 16. And it says, And there, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Wait a minute. godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. He, he just wanted to have this uh, porridge, whatever it was, soup, whatever it was. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought it, even though he looked for it. He did it with tears. Yeah, he had emotion. But it wasn't real. It wasn't real. Make sure yours is real. So it's comprehending and realizing there's a seriousness about this comprehending and repenting. Folks, I don't think it's too late, too far down the road here in history in, in the future, that this country is going to be under persecution. I, I, mean, do you, do you, I mean, I don't see it any different. I mean, it seems like it's screaming out there in front of us. 
But consider this, Psalm 119, verse 59. And the psalmist there says this, I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. He took a look at his ways, and he could see that the way that he was going was the wrong way, and he said, and I went in your, to follow your testimonies. That's comprehending, folks. The next thing is to confess. Confess is a change of mind. There's a two-fold nature of inward confession is revealed in the meaning of the word homologeo, which means to say the same thing. That's confession. We must acknowledge God, the fact that what we've done is sin, and we've sinned against him, and then the nature of that sin, that it has a hold on us. We're in agreement with him. And so, I have two particular verses that I think are very important here. One of which I used to tell to my children all the time, Proverbs chapter 28, verses 13. I don't tell, them, tell it to them anymore because they're pro Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 13. Did I say that? Something different? No. Pro oh. That's the second mistake I've made this year. It's Proverbs 28.13. Proverbs 28.13. Please forgive me. And it says there, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I, I used to tell my children, tell me everything. Tell me everything. Because I want to find out anyway. So if you've done something wrong, come home and tell me from school. I, I, I want to know. I had one daughter who'd come in, s plop herself down on my lap, and she'd tell me everything. The other daughter would say, why do you do that? He doesn't know that happened. He'll find out. <laughs> and the other one would, you know, hide something in her book bag or whatever. Oh, I, I didn't find it. It fell out of your book bag, and there it is. And uh, it just showed me, you can't hide it. You know what? You may be able to get away with it for a little while. I've, I've seen some corruption get, get, being able to get away with for a little while, but God finds it out. He, he takes care of it. So whatever you have, confess it. Let it be known. Then it can be covered because that's what, exactly what God does. He covers it. And the other verse in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. And 1 John 1, 8, it says this, if we say, that's if we were to possibly say this, that we have no sin. Do you ever meet anybody who has no sin? They never confess their sin. They never say, please, would you please forgive me? I have seen people like that. They don't know how to do that. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Confess your sin. I said this to some young people once. They're in a premarital class, and the guy said, but I, do I have to tell her everything? She may not want to marry me. I said, save her <laughs> from having to marry you. Because if you have this that you're covering up, what else are you going to cover up down the road? Let her know. Humble yourself. Yeah, confess your sin. The one who confesses is facing the fact of his sin, taking a look at it. He neither tries to hide it, deny it, or blame others. It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent that's there. That, I mean, look at how soon that started when we tried to blame shift it to someone else. And we still do it today. It's no different. Take it. That's mine. I own it. I shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. It was sin. Own it. This confession gives grace. This confession gives humbleness of the heart because you are looking rightly at yourself. 
We are all sinners. We need to come to that understanding. You need to see, as a Christian, as a believer, that you are a sinner who deserves hell. I say this often in a counseling class. Let's say this is how much sin I had before Christ entered into my life. I probably have more now. Why? Because I recognize more of my sin. We should all recognize more of our sin. It's not the same sin, thankfully, by God's grace, but I recognize more of it. And it's continually repenting of it. Now, we are in Zechariah, but it's interesting. I've gone back to Nehemiah, and I've started to look at Nehemiah and started to study it. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, it says there, verse 2, this is where the children of Israel confess. Why are they confessing? Because they're going back into the promised land, and God is giving that to them. They were told to go build a wall. They were told to uh, protect the people there. It says, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their and the iniquities of their fathers. Could you imagine that? If we had a Sunday of confession, if everybody stood up in the worship center and started confessing their sins, some of the wives would be, whoa. Some of the husbands would be, whoa. It would be different. But we should be confessing our sin at least to God and to whoever we have offended. We're going to be talking about that in a minute. Confessing is the opportunity to take responsibility. As Christians, we should take responsibility. It it then also is self-accusing. You're able to accuse yourself of what's happened and not blame somebody else. You know why that's good? Because if you don't do any self-accusing, Satan's going to come along and begin to accuse you. Oh, Do you know what he did? Do you see what happened with that governor in Virginia? I mean, he doesn't know which way to go anymore. You know, I I, I had the black face. No, I didn't have the black face. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just absolutely ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Take ownership. Confess it. It is not this... And this is what some people say. I did it because of my spouse. I did it because of my children. I did it because of my parents. I did it because of my boss. That doesn't cut it, folks. It's not going to cut it with God. Number three there, choosing, choosing change of life. Change of life. True repentance always includes a willful resolve not to repeat the sin. Did you hear that? A willful resolve not to repeat the sin. I love this, Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. You see, the sin that was there, now you go in the other direction, this is what you do. I I love what happened in Luke chapter 5. Uh, And we're going to pick this out because we're coming up on tax season anyway, so I'm going to pick on tax collectors. We used to have one in here. Uh, He stopped collecting. But anyway, Luke 5, verse 27. It says, After that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind, got up and began to follow him. He left everything behind, folks. That means he left his booth, which was where he made his money, he left his money behind and he followed him. That's what we're supposed to do. Leave it all behind. It's virtually cutting the hand off. Romans chapter 13. Just to give you a picture of what this is and the choosing to change one's life, 
Romans 13, verse 11, it says, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. In other words, wake up, folks. Wake up. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. We change completely. Have you ever seen somebody who's truly given their life to Christ come out of a gang? And the things that they used to do in the gang, and and now they're they're totally different, and now they serve others, and they care about others, and they love others. I have a very dear friend. That's a great picture. Now, the effects of true repentance. The effects of true repentance. Although repentance itself is an inward turning, it takes place in the heart and the mind, and it inevitably leads to a change in other areas of the person's life. Things begin to change. Henry Smith said this, he said, quote, the wicked do not weep for their sins past, but the godly purpose to sin no more. The wicked do not weep for their sins past, but the godly purpose to sin no more. So if it is not accompanied or followed by such effects when they are appropriate, it is not real repentance, but a false one that fails to bring forgiveness. So what does real repentance look like? Number one, resoluteness. Resoluteness. Matthew chapter 18. Now, I'm not going to go through the passage on the church discipline, but Matthew 18, just a couple of verses there. I want you to see the seriousness with which our Lord Jesus Christ sees sin. Matthew 18, starting in verse 7, it says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble... Cut it off. Throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Now, folks, let's be real here. I, I don't think Jesus is saying he wants a bunch of pirates showing up at Grace Church. Okay, he's trying to show the seriousness of sin. Cut it off. Do something about it. There are enough men and women around here to be able to help and minister to those who are stuck in some kind of sin. They're, they're all over the place. We're getting more and more that are certified for biblical counseling. Get more and more uh, elders. I mean, I mean, I can't. We haven't had this many elders since the early 80s. we got 45 men now. We've got plenty. There are plenty of, uh, of deacons in here. You've got plenty of Bible study leaders. Go to them. You see, the test of true repentance is resoluteness. You want to kill sin. That's what you need to do. What are you doing about the things that are ruling your heart? The things that control you? Do, do you see the motives that come out of that? I must have this. I must have that. I always say to folks, keep your hands open. If the Lord gives it to you, he gives it to you. If he doesn't give it to you, don't be grabbing for it. Are you willing to give them up for Christ? Those kinds of things. This is fruit of repentance. Performing deeds appropriate. That's Matthew chapter 3, which we already looked at. Okay, let me uh, make a, another suggestion. I'm running out of time here. How about this? When you confess sin, you restitute. You give restitution. Restitution to the person. This word means to set things right. The repentant sinner must fulfill any obligations to the offended party. We see what um, Zacchaeus does up on the tree. He wanted to see Jesus. 
You know, they say he was a short guy. I don't think he was a short guy. He just wanted to get up on a tree and see Jesus. And Jesus says, come down. I'm going to go eat at your house. And, and, uh, and he says, uh, you know what? I'm going to give four times what I took from people. I'd love to meet a tax gatherer like that. Give me four times what you took from me. Four times. Four times. Restitution. There should be some kind of restitution. If you've hurt somebody in some way, obviously taking something from them. True repentance includes both an outward confession, but let me tell you this, that confession is only when it is appropriate. What do I mean by that? Let's say in my mind, okay, I have a sinful thought against George, okay, in my mind. That's between me and God. I mean, I would never have that. I want you to know that. But, you know, I don't have to ask him for forgiveness. I have to ask God for forgiveness. But let's say I said something ungodly to George that was painful or hurtful. I got to go to George and ask him for forgiveness. That's what I have to do. So you, you, you only do it when somebody knows about it. All right? And you need to be willing to accept the consequences. If you've committed a crime, you have consequences that you're going to have to live with. Um, maybe it's a fractured relationship. Um, maybe that relationship's never going to be what it used to be. You know, you commit adultery and somebody divorces you, you, you got consequences. You have illicit sexual sin, you may have consequences of other things, STDs and all kinds of things. Restitution is what's important. Look at Psalm 51. David, and this is a beautiful psalm. I remember the first time somebody preached this that I heard, and uh, I still have the notes in my original Bible, but it was wonderful. Psalm 51, 3 and 4, it says, For I know my transgressions. <laughs> I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I know them. You know the, yours as well. You know what they are. You know the things that have master over your heart. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So when you are judged for those sins by God, he's just. He's just. And if he takes things away, he takes things away. Restitution. Next one is reconciliation. Reconciliation. When our sin has resulted in a broken relationship with another, true repentance will cause us to do whatever we can, whatever it takes to transform that conflict into peaceful and edifying friendship. Uh, I have done this, I can't tell you how many times, three generations once. I had 15 people in a, one of our conference rooms here. 15 people from three different generations who were on this camp, all professing Christians who hadn't talked to one another in three years. Are you serious? I don't know that. I mean, they're in the same family, by the way. Okay, it wasn't just generations of different families. No, it was the family. And we sat there and I said, this is how we have to start this out. Has anybody done anything wrong here? Would you please tell me? And tell everybody else, confess it, ask for forgiveness. And so we went around the room. I mean, I was at this for four hours. Go around the room. Okay, now confess it. By the time we got finished doing all of that, the relationships were back. Well, I don't know exactly that they were back where they were. But they began to see they took ownership of what they had done to break that relationship. Reconciliation. Matthew chapter 5, I think is very serious. In the church of Jesus Christ, we should be doing this. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and present your offering. In other words, if you're there about to receive communion and then you remember, oh, 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 I, 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 I said this cutting thing about George. I'm going to keep using this example because otherwise 
I got to use somebody else. And, and I need to go to George. I need to ask him for forgiveness. Hopefully he's not serving communion that day so I can get to him real quick. You know what I mean? Folks, it's that serious. Could you imagine being in the same family for two years or three years, whatever it was, that these folks didn't talk to one another? You're kidding me. They're all in sin. With that, they should be trying to heal that relationship. They should be putting that together. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And so they should be putting it back together. The last step is regret. It's a change of heart. It's a change of heart. True repentance may not always be accompanied by emotions. I, I'm, emotions are okay, folks. There's nothing wrong with them. Even though I'm a guy, I still don't mind emotions. I have emotions believe it or not. Sometimes, though, emotions does corroborate what that person is actually saying. It gives us an idea that there's something real there. Job chapter 42, verse 6 says this, Therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. I mean, he put the dust and ashes on. I don't, I don't know what that feels like, but that couldn't have been very good for him with all those boils on there. True repentance that produces sorrow is not superficial. So don't take just because they're crying that it is real or it's not real. Something I learned in my ordination. Somebody asked me, what would you do in this particular situation? I'm trying to solve the problem, okay, biblically. And uh, one of the elders says, you know, sometimes you just have to weep with those who weep. And I went, that, that's the best lesson I learned throughout my ordination. And I told an elder just recently that that was the best lesson. You have to just weep sometimes with those who weep. True godly sorrow is something that is kept in the bowels of one's heart. And it starts to come out, and it gives you an affirmation that this person truly is seeking forgiveness. But emotional response alone does not, uh, does not prove any kind of repentance or whether it's genuine or not. Please note, I still don't see anybody out there, so I want to keep going. Not every case of repentance requires all of these changes. Okay, we just talked about a whole bunch of things. It doesn't require all of those changes. We must be very careful to allow the fruits of repentance to be defined by God and not by man. So if somebody doesn't have all of that, I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, you didn't really repent. I Leave it up to God. If somebody asks me for forgiveness, and I, and I think I've told some of you this, I was serving in the prayer room one day, and uh, some fellow came up to me and said, you know, for the last 15 years I've hated your guts. Oh, really? What's your name? I don't know who it is. I'm serious. And he says, well, this is what I've been thinking, you know. Not, I said, you know what, brother? I, I, I forgive you. You can keep on going to hate my guts, too. I don't care. But, I mean, really, confess your sin to those who know you've sinned, okay? And then realize that, you know, sometimes you don't have to ask for forgiveness. Realize sometimes you don't have to ask for forgiveness if the person doesn't know it. But if they do, you want to make that relationship right. If you think that somebody's been offended here by you, go to them. Say, hey, I, I notice sort of relationship has cooled off. Something's changed. Have I done something? And, and if I have, please forgive me. I, I need to know what it is so that I don't do it again. You see, you have to recognize your sin. You have to take ownership of your sin in order to repent of your sin. We all need to grow, folks. We're all not arrived. We're all still in that process. True repentance, though, always leads the way for God's forgiveness. Make sure that you've truly repented. Make sure that you live a life of repentance. I pray that you enjoy the forgiveness of your sins. It's wonderful to know that you've been forgiven for your sins. Anybody want to give me an Amen. And if there's anyone who wants to speak to one of the pastor's elders we have today, 
we're, we're trying to figure out who's going to be here today, and we found out there weren't too many of us going to be here uh, elders-wise because they were off here, going here, going there. But speak to one of the elders. It's pastor. Carl will be back, and I still love Carl. And I love him dearly, actually. But folks, take care of it. Don't let it keep going on. Don't kick the can down the road. You keep kicking the can down the road, that can may not come back. And you have nothing to kick. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the rain, which is just a picture of the blessing that you have for us. Lord God, I thank you that we are going to be here uh, and be able to enjoy 50 years of genuine faithfulness. Lord God, continue to work in this church to will and to work your good pleasure. May the missionaries that we have and uh, that are going out, Lord, I pray for them. I pray for Michelle's um, baby. I pray, Lord God, that that would uh, all go well. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that they be able to get back out on the field as quickly as possible. And for all those other missionaries, my friends that are out there, I pray that you would give them grace in your name. Amen.